Thank you so much for that intro. And I'm going to try to bring something meaningful tonight. I'm going to mention, because sometimes it helps, sometimes it helps to say this. Um, it helps folks to take me a little more seriously. Um, my brother-in-law is um, John Foreman of Switchfoot. Does that help anybody? A little bit? Okay, wait, I see some nods. Hands up if that helps you to think, oh, well, maybe I'm going to give him more attention. Okay. Well, there it is. So if at any point you're kind of dozing or something, you can just do this with your fingers, and that's David Dark, and that's John Foreman. We're tight. Um, so whatever credibility you assign to him, um, you know, send it on over to me, if you would. Um, and my title for the talk is um, How to Remember Well in a Dismembering World. I have things that I'm going to share that did not obviously tie to the election as I was preparing them, but they might now. And while I'll probably avoid too much reference to that in the talk part, I invite, um, when we get into the discussion, um, direct questions, thoughts, um, feelings concerning the election. And I'll say of that too, the back and forth is where the sun really shines in my talk. So while I'm going to say a lot of things, a lot of the things I'm going to say, I'm really going to welcome feedback, questions. If you make that claim, how can you possibly believe this? How can you feel this way and feel that way? So do, as you're writing things down, it'd be wonderful if folks wrote things down, or just um, committing to memory, um, stuff that strikes you as particularly provocative, know that we're going to have that moment um, before we're done. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Um, the challenge to remember. When I do the word remember, when I imagine the word remember, I, I do a little re-member, and I recall a moment with a friend who was talking about seeking a divorce. And I surprised him by not telling him, I think he looked at me as somebody who thought that was an inconceivable decision, um, especially I dearly love and loved his wife. I love him, and he was approaching me with this. And I, I didn't say, no, don't, in the way that he thought I would. But instead, I said, however this goes between you and your wife, it's going to be really important that you remember her instead of dismembering her. It could be that in order to feel good about this decision, you're going to start lying to yourself and others about who she is so as to legitimate yourself, as we are prone to do. So even though, and it turned out they didn't get a divorce, and it's great, and they're glad that they didn't get a divorce, but my challenge to him, and I guess it's even my challenge to him now, and to her, is that in our efforts to feel good about ourselves, that we don't lie about who other people are and what they're up to. So remember her instead of dismembering her. That's a difficult thing to do when we feel threatened by people. It's a difficult thing to do when we think we've gotten to the bottom of someone else with an adjective. But I like to say that labeling 
and simplifying people that way is sort of the costliest of mental shortcuts. When you think you've gotten to the bottom of somebody else with an adjective, for instance. And in this um, conversation that I'm recalling right now, part of the challenge, too, was to fulfill that vow that is even deeper than cohabiting, the vow to um, love one another, as long, you all know the, the other half of that, love one another. Could somebody say it so I feel less alone? <laughs> love one another as, as long as we both shall live. So I'm going way personal on that, but I'm thinking marriage, relationship, being true to someone. Um, we're prone um, to resist really remembering people on account of our defensiveness, our shame, the urge to self-legitimate, the urge to disassociate. And I guess I would, though I said I wasn't going to do this, I would say when we think we've gotten to the bottom of somebody, when we call them a liberal, or if we think we've gotten to the bottom of somebody when we call them a conservative, that even that those labels as well are often um, um, ways of avoiding communion and understanding, um, ways of avoiding the infinitely valuable bearer of God's image that every other human being is. So I will say, and I said I wouldn't say it, that that is one of the challenges before us when we think, I could not live with myself if I voted that way. Um, we get to put that in the form of a question. And if somebody views our vote, oh, I'm just getting right into it, I'm sorry. But if somebody views our vote um, as a deeply offensive, violent thing unto them, we get to ask them, well, how is that? And not in a, how is that? Um, that can't possibly be because that's not what I've intended. But how is that? As in, tell me how my decision in this regard strikes you. Because I don't, it takes two to mean, after all. And what I intend is always going to be different from how my words, my decisions impact somebody else. Um, so this is a, a slight switch on that. Okay, we'll, we'll get back to it. But in that work of remembering well, um, in that work of figuring out how I got to where I am, um, one process of remembering well is um, holding out our mistakes, holding out our embarrassing ideas with open hands, with compassion, with um, um, a determination to be candid and honest with ourselves and each other. And there's a phrase that I think of as a very helpful um, liturgy for my own thinking, which is my rights, my wrongs, I'll write till I'm right with God. I'm not going to take, I'm not going to pretend, I'm not going to lie to myself about what I love, what I've drawn comfort from. I'm going to try and hold it all out with open hands. My rights, my wrongs, I'll write, W-R-I-T-E, till I'm right with God. I'm going to write it all out. I'm not going to just try to be a good commercial for people. I'm going to see what's in there, and I'm going to be honest about it. Does anybody know who I'm quoting when I say my rights, my wrongs, I'll write till I'm right with God? Somebody knows. 
Is it really the case that nobody knows who I'm quoting when I say my rights, my wrongs? I'll write till I'm right with God. It's from a Grammy award-winning album from last year. Maybe it didn't win. Maybe it was just nominated. My rights, my wrongs, I'll write till I'm right with God. Does nobody know that one? Are you just resisting, raising your hand? Is there an unwillingness? Okay, this is Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Is anyone familiar with that album? That Now, when I say my rights, my wrongs, I'll write till I'm right with God. Would you raise your hand if you know that that is in one of the songs? Do you all think that I'm lying to you when I say that it's in one of the songs? It's the We Gonna Be All Right song, right? You know that my rights, my wrongs, I'll write till I'm right with God. Okay, so I think that's a helpful one. Because as a commitment, it's I'm not just going to pray what um, seems good. I'm going to pray honestly. I'm going to hold it all out. I'm going to try to be true. So in my own work of trying to do that, um, I do exercises where I try to recall things that I'm embarrassed about in my own, I guess we could say, cultural, religious formation. Um, and I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story about myself. I'm going to tell you two, actually. But I'm, I'm going to start with this one. I am, um, I'm 46 years old. And when I was 17, I was working in a movie theater. This was 1987. And the films that were playing in this movie theater in 1987, were you all born in 1987? OK, most of you weren't. Dead gum. I just got to deal with this. OK. But you know the movies, I bet. The movies playing the movie theater, if memory serves, Top Gun, you know, Top Gun, um, Princess Bride, Princess Bride, and No Way Out. Nobody knows No Way Out. Kevin Costner, No Way Out, No Way Out, possibly. Okay, there's a hand for No Way Out. Um, I was working in a movie theater on a Sunday, which I felt rather guilty about, um, but I needed the money. And um, I come from a tradition called the Church of Christ. I don't think there's a lot of them in Pennsylvania, but they're all through the South, Church of Christ. I'd been baptized at 15. On this particular Sunday, I was feeling great, but I was nearing, um, it was nearing midnight, and I realized that for the first time since I'd been baptized, I had not had what we called the Lord's Supper. Um, do this in remembrance of me, the crackers and the grape juice, right? And I had, I had this impression, no one had told me this, that after I got baptized, I was cleansed in some sense, but I was going to have to check in again every Sunday to get cleansed. So I, start, I fell into a panic on this Sunday because I'd been baptized and I hadn't had the communion. Um, and I didn't want to tell anybody about it because it was such a strange way of viewing the world. So I asked somebody... Um, could you look after the concession stand? And we're nearing midnight at this point. And I rushed down to the nearest um, Kro Kroger. Y'all got Kroger? Kroger, okay. A Kroger. Um, and I ran up and down the aisles looking for crackers and grape juice. And then um, and I, I bought them, tried to look calm. They didn't seem to know what was going on. Stumbled out into the parking lot ripped that thing open, tried to get in the right frame of mind because I didn't want to eat and drink judgment unto myself. But I, I thought, I prayed, I ate the cracker, 
I drank the grape juice. I looked at my watch and I thought, I've made it because it was like two minutes till midnight. And it was serious. And, and of course, do this in remembrance. Me, I was trying to remember rightly. I was deeply relieved, but I also laughed at myself a little bit. Because I, I, I would not have been willing at that point in time to say to myself, this is ridiculous. But I did know that it was strange. And I thought, you know, I'm doing what I think I have to do in order to avoid eternal damnation. Um, but it is a strange thing. And when I think about why was I able to laugh at myself in a moment like that, weirdly I thought of Steve Martin, who I have admired for a long time, and I was imitating him most definitely at that point in time. I'm probably imitating him now in ways that I don't even understand. Um, I also thought of Doctor Who, which I was really into. I thought, what would Doctor Who make of this? thing that I just did. I thought of the Twilight Zone, and I thought of Star Trek, and I thought if Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock had watched this, they would think, you know, we need to violate the Prime Directive. <laughs> that hardly ever gets any laughter, but it did this time. So just real quick, tiny tangent, the Prime Directive is you got to leave these planets alone so they can evolve at their own pace. And I'm suggesting that they would think, look, this is one of those places. If he thinks that the timing of the cracker and the grape juice is what will decide his future, we've got to go ahead and talk him out of this. So I had all of that going on. Um, and I could name other things. Um, in my attempt to remember um, the life and death of Jesus, I also remembered this other stuff. And there's a way of describing it that is, oh, okay, well, you had your religion thing going on, and then you had these secular people who helped you out of it. Is that even a word these days, secular? So I understand this, secular. But that isn't, that wouldn't quite work for me because this um, divide, that they aren't just, I got my Sunday school here, I've got my Twilight Zone and Star Trek here. They are all, in my mind even now, I would say that I'm surrounded by a great cloud of pop culture witnesses that I don't have to say, I've got my God stuff here and I've got this other stuff. And I would say, um, and I, I have said this in regard to um, Chance the Rapper's coloring book album, because I think this album does the same thing that I'm talking about. You can try to divide the sacred and the secular, but it dissolves upon contact with the way our heart really works. Um, does that make sense to everybody? And I think it's worthwhile doing that, where we don't divide our life between um, this is my devotional stuff, and then I watch Walking Dead sometimes. I think we want it, it's good to ask yourself, and I do watch Walking Dead, to ask yourself, why do I love it so much? Why do I go to it? Not in a, you're bad for going to it, but what is it in me and my own experience that is spoken to by the Breaking Bad series? Um, yeah, so I want to keep them together um, in the interest of living a less divided life. I'm always looking for a way of tying it all together. 
And, but we have forces in our world and within ourselves, we have language that keeps us from tying things together, that keeps us from remembering ourselves and others well. And I have three abstractions that I think are the most harmful abstractions in our day, in the way we talk. And I'm going to go in I, the big one. There, it's kind of. I'll start with the third, um, then I'll go to the second, and then I'll go to the first. Um, the third, and I'll, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, um, that I think is the third worst, most catastrophically unexamined abstraction of our time is the media. People speak of the media. We blame the media. The media did this. The media makes people think this way. To which I always want to say, media is just plural for mediums. Or for medium. Sorry, I I said mediums. I should have said media. Um, And when people say I'm against the media, or I'm angry with the media, I want to say, well, what, do you have a problem with postcards? (laughs) Is it, what is it exactly? Which mediums are you against? And of course, the the question is always, um, so, oh, well, I mean the news, okay? Do you mean real news? Or do you mean news product? Because what we call the news is probably news product. Um, I mean, I, I like to say that poetry is news. Poetry is news that stays news. Um, a story that is going to make me change the way I'm living my life, that's probably news. Um, but that we don't have to call news product news. Um, we can have some control over that. And we can think through our sources. We can think through who owns particular networks and who might just be looking for more clicks, more views, that kind of thing. Um, We can break that down a little bit, but maybe I've said enough to put a little question mark next to that word, the media. And the second abstraction that I think is one of the most catastrophically unexamined abstractions of our time is politics. What do we think we mean when we say politics? Do we mean discussion over how we might best organize our own lives and the lives of others? Um, Do we mean how we might um, consider the question of resources and what is common? Um, I I wanna say that, um, and I actually tweeted this today because I thought it was profound when it occurred to me. I said, I think we need to stop speaking of politics as if it's an activity that only involves other people. And I guess I will say that that unexamined consideration of the word politics has a lot to do with some of the confusion of the last 48 hours and the fear and all of it. Realizing the things that we say, the way we talk about, oh my gosh, we found out, didn't we? Um, That the news product version of Who's going to win? Was, any, was that a trustworthy witness? No, not at all. But did the, did the electorate need um, some real news in order to know what's coming 
and how to respond. Yeah, wherever you land on that, I think we could deal. We, we are well served by better information. And if we settle um, for that which is coming at us as news, as if, well, I guess that's gospel truth, um, we do that at great cost to ourselves and others. Okay, so I'm gonna wander away from the politics thing for a moment, but we can come back to it, because I, I said a, we can question this. I'm gonna give you the little proverb that came to me today, if we're willing to think of it as a proverb. We need to stop speaking of politics as if it's always, what did I say? Always, as if it's an activity undertaken always by others. So now I'm kind of leading into the other big, catastrophically unexamined um, abstraction, which is religion. Religion as an unexamined abstraction. Um, if there's a bombing and we discover that a bombing suspect was seen at a mosque, suddenly the headline is religion played a role. Religion may have been involved which to me is like saying culture was involved or language made an appearance in that event. <laughs> so I'm wanting to take that apart a little bit, this word. I don't want to take it apart. I just want it to mean something rather than being a, a distraction. Um, the content of the religion is the question. The tradition, and is it a faithful representation of the tradition or not? Um, okay, let me just keep moving here. And I will, on religion, I'll, I won't do this for too long, but I'm going to read some things out loud. In its root meaning, religion, religar, is to bind again, to bind back, is simply a tying together, a question of how we see fit to organize ourselves and our resources. Okay, I realize I just kind of showed my hand in a way because that's how I just defined politics. And I would say that the division between religion and politics was not discovered, but was invented. And is often um, posited so as to avoid. There was a, a president not too long ago who was asked how he could justify preemptive strikes while also being a man of prayer and a follower of Jesus, to which that president said, I do seek God's wisdom, but sometimes you have to step back from religion because you have a job to do. And I thought that's an interesting concept, stepping back from religion. How would one do that if the question of religion is the question of our witness, how we speak, what we're doing with our lives, how we look after the poor among us, that kind of thing. As has always been the case, okay, yeah, sorry, how things have been tied together, the question of religion, question of politics too, I want to say, is the question of how things have been tied together so far and how they might be tied together differently, a binding, an unbinding, and a binding again. As has always been the case, the organizing of selves and societies can go beautifully or badly or both but the development of bonds, like the dissolution of bonds, is inescapable. So I define religion as follows. Religion as your controlling story. Your religion is your controlling story, and blessedly, your controlling story can change. 
you can switch it up. You can change the story that you're in. A religion is a controlling story, and there are at least as many as there are people. Stories change, but the fact of story doesn't. When we escape a bad story, or see through one into the shock or awe of the absurdity of what's really going on, we haven't escaped stories. We've simply awakened our way into better and truer ones. And we've probably only managed that feat with the considerate assistance of others, whether living or dead. No one awakens all by themselves. Conversions occur all the time, for better and worse. We all drink the Kool-Aid. Religion happens. We're often admonished to keep religion out of politics or vice versa, and civil exchange does require that no one be allowed to hog the microphone while decreeing that God, the God in his head, trumps the reasoning power in everyone else's. But human life won't divide itself up quite so neatly. Given the overwhelming complications of trying to negotiate a just, joyful, and more helpful than not existence in a world of raw data with which we often have no idea what to do, we can perhaps be forgiven for wanting to rope off one issue from the other. That's political. That's religious. That's a private matter. This is worship. That's a guilty pleasure. And this one over here, it's just business. It is what it is. It's nothing personal. Sorry about that. So I've tried to take on a few abstractions there and suggest that they don't ultimately work if we're interested in living an undivided life. I, I completely get it, this keep politics out of it. I mean, I understand these divisions, but I guess I want to say that if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and if our prayer is that the kingdom would come, not somewhere else, but on earth as it is in heaven, then these divisions, we get to challenge them. Maybe we have to. Um, these div divisions can obscure the living fact of certain connections and often leave us estranged from our own sense of ourselves. But if we're willing to apply religion to the whole of our own lives as readily as we level it at others, it can wonderfully disrupt whatever it was we thought we were talking about whatever we thought we had in mind and hand. And let me say, I'm not saying, let's all start calling ourselves religious. But I would say that when you say, speak of others as religious, as if it's only others who are dealing with strange ideas about the world, that that's kind of an alarmingly uncool move. I believe there's something dishonest and deluded at work when we speak of people who are guy as if it's only them who are guided by unreasoning rage or strange notions. In this view, religion is only a word for the way intellectually underdeveloped people get carried away, a snob's word. And it strikes me as a strange disowning of one's own vulnerability, and if you like, gullibility. To do religion that way, or to do politics that way, is a rude denial of the fact of our own common creatureliness. My fellow creatures, I propose that we not play that way. If what we believe is what we see, is what we do, is who we are, there's no getting away from religion. And there's no getting away from politics. And there's no getting away from the question of witness. We're always broadcasting in one way or another. We're always worshiping in one way or another, I want to say. 
we can speak of something as a worship service. I went to a worship service. But if by that we mean to imply that there is an on and off switch to our worship, I think we need to not do that. All worship all the time, all religion all the time, all cultivating in one way or another all the time. You're never not cultivating. Um, Culture is not optional. I have a couple friends who put it that way. Um, But I truly, I welcome... But it is optional, as is religion, as is politics. We can talk about this. Um, okay, hang on, let me see. Calling someone else religious doesn't answer the question of my own. And my big hope in it is to think of culture, politics, religion as different words for one thing, is part of the work of seeing relationally. To examine the stories we inherit and hand down to others without too much thought as well as those we cobble together to work a crowd or fund a campaign or target a market or convince ourselves to get out of bed in the morning. Sociology invites us to form the words belief systems around these phenomena. Doing so is profoundly helpful in the work of achieving a degree of critical distance when it comes to our perceived have-tos. You can imagine people saying, our belief systems may differ here and there, but we both want better public schools, right? Right. And in the age-old task of listening sympathetically to our fellow creatures, of imagining them well, we can use all the help we can get. Thank you, social science, for this. But I'm not sure anyone's ever experienced enlightenment, been born again, called to repentance, or decided to sell their belongings on account of a system. The voice, the tale, the image, the parable that gets through to you, that wins your heart religiously, is the one that makes it past your defenses. You've been won over and you probably didn't see it coming. You've been enlisted into a drama, whether positively or negatively. And it shouldn't be controversial to note that it happens all the time. We've all been enlisted into a drama in the last couple days in a way of understanding each other. Oh, it's been going on for months. But we have the freedom to observe consciously that drama instead of letting the catechism of the news product dictate the way we feel about each other. And with that, I'm going to have to make reference to Fred Rogers. Thank you. Does anybody, um, will you raise your hand if you know who Fred Rogers is? He's a children's minister who is no longer, well, I mean, he is merged with the infinite, but maybe he's more with us now, even though he's not here bodily. Fred Rogers is Mr. Rogers. His ministry was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And there's a beautiful video uh, from like 1968 or 1969 in which he um, was trying to make a case for the funding of public television. And he was explaining to an angry senator just what it was that he did for half an hour with puppets. And he said, it's a neighborhood expression of care, is what it is. And when I was watching this video the other day, in the height of the election, I did hashtag neighborhood expression of care 2016. Vote for that, a neighborhood expression of care. Um, And the guy was not having any of it, because he found Fred Rogers ridiculous. But the more Fred Rogers spoke, the more he said, we're trying to 
address the inner drama of the child. And we think that might be a really, I know you're worried about children too, Senator. Okay, can a senator say, I'm not worried about children? I mean, no, you're dead for. Uh, I mean, it's generally, common wisdom says that if you speak hatefully of children, you don't have a chance um, to hold public office. But when Fred Rogers puts it that way, he says, you know, I know that you're concerned about what children are watching. And they watch things that, and he, and he said, it was beautiful the way he did it. It's like, forgive me for putting it this way, but I sometimes call it bombardment. And so when he dropped that word, it's like, oh man, yeah, it is bombardment, isn't it? He said, so we try to communicate to children. We try to engage them constructively. And we want to communicate to them, and this is really worth writing down, that their feelings are mentionable and manageable. That's gospel there. That is good news to be told and to believe and to be assured that your feelings are mentionable and manageable. I think that the, the book of Psalms, the selection of particular prayers that include some very angry, even murderous prayers, that the place of the Psalms in the biblical canon communicates that the Jewish community believes that the God who is there is a God who believes that feelings are mentionable and manageable. That would kind of be where I'm headed on the, my rights, my wrongs, I'll write till I'm right with God. I'm not going to try to deny to myself the thought that I just had, but I'm going to try and find a safe place in which to express it. And there's psalms that if they're acted on are just as horrible as can be, but if they're prayed, if they're expressed and articulated, it's kind of like art in a way. You can, art can move you, can, can give you a dangerous situation, but it's art, as can songs, as can television, drama, all of it. Anyway, he said, feelings are mentionable and manageable. And he said, if I could, Senator, I'd like to quote a song to you. I'd like to recite a song. And he said, okay. And he said, the song goes like this. What do you do with the mad that you feel? Now, that came from a child, he told the Senator. So he didn't even, he didn't make it past that first part. But what do you do with the mad that you feel? It really was like an exorcism. You can watch it on your contraptions later because you're watching the senator realize he is a child suddenly. And he's been, I mean, it is kind of the ultimate question. What do you do with the mad that you feel? I wish that question had been put to both presidential candidates by a moderator at some point. They say, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And both of you can take as long as you want to answer that question. <laughs> or you can each explain where your witness fits alongside the witness of Fred Rogers. And we can go from there. We can go from there. Um, but here's the reason it gave divide. Because part of the song is, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Do you hit somebody? Do you run as fast as you can? Do you yell? Just giving all these little outlets. And he says, it's a good feeling of control to know that at any time I can stop, stop, stop. And kind of uncharacteristically, Fred Rogers kind of beat the table a little bit gently when he said, stop, stop, stop. And, and we can. We can stop. Our, in our assessment of other people, in the thing that we're about to say, about the person 
we're afraid of, we can stop. Um, I teach in, as was mentioned, I teach in a women's prison. And one of my students just a few weeks ago said I have a rule that if I'm upset, I count to 10 in my mind before I speak. And I said, that's a pretty good rule. And she said, well, everybody in this room would tell you that if I don't follow that rule, I would be in solitary confinement right now. And if I did follow that rule, if I'd been taught that rule as a child, I wouldn't be here. And just that the moment of pause is always available to us. We always have the opportunity to be our better selves. We always have the chance to not um, let our worst selves um, stick out. Um, hmm. Trying to decide. I'm going to skip some things and save some of this for tomorrow in the interest of having more time to talk. But re being really careful with our abstractions, politics, the media, religion, is one way of recognizing relationship at every turn. And Parker Palmer has a quote where he says, um, every fact is a function of relationship. Uh, Martin Luther King, a beautiful line, he said, when I'm drinking my coffee, when I'm reading my newspaper, when I'm drinking my orange juice, there's people in all these things. There are lengthy liturgies of other people's labor from the moment I get up in the morning and enter the world. There's people there. I'm in relationship with those people. Hopefully, I'm in just relationship with those people because hopefully they were paid well and hopefully they have what they need in their work that brings me these things, coffee, orange juice, newspaper. And then here's the phrase. He said, at every moment, I'm in an inescapable network of mutuality. We exist, each of us, constantly in an inescapable network of mutuality. Um, my son, while watching Scooby-Doo, gave me, I want to call it a vision, but it would be weird. Well, he saw, I asked him why he liked Scooby-Doo so much. And he said, well, I love you know when Scooby and Shaggy get scared. And I said, well, what is it about Scooby and Shaggy getting scared that you love? Um, and he said, I love it when they hold their chother. It's very young. I love it when they hold their chother. Now, what he wanted to say was, I love it when they hold each other. But he, didn't, he couldn't write at that point in time. He said, I love it when they hold their chother. Do you know what I'm talking about, that image, when they hold their chother? Okay, if you don't, it's this thing where they, they're scared and they grab each other. And you hear a little cowbell kind of kind of thing in there. But they're levitating. And it's difficult to see where the dog begins and the man ends in that moment. They hold their chother. They hold each other. And as I meditated on that, I thought, that's interesting because chother is this commonality thing. It's kinship. It's the self that you have that you don't have except in relation to other people. Um, that wisdom is at work throughout Scripture. It's not my Father who art in heaven. It's our Father. And of course, all of these letters of Paul are addressed generally to communities. It's us. 
and, and there's an Irish proverb, in the shelter of each other we shall live. And you can make it in the shelter of the other, if you like. You also have a line that there is no self, and it is the relational self. So the idea that yourself, you have a self that is a self apart from relationship, maybe we want to say that's not a helpful idea. The selves we have are the gift of others, the gift of God, all relationship all the time. So we got the chother thing. Is the chother bit clear to, clear to you? The chother, and in, um, I, had a mo- I was actually in San Diego visiting my switchfoot brother-in-law. By saying that, is that waking everybody up a little bit, baby? I was there and I was attempting to surf and it was going very badly. I don't know if you look at me right now and think, ah, he looks like he would be a good surfer. Or you probably don't. Anyway, I was trying it, but I was mostly looking after my, um, the same son who gave me the chother revelation. And um, I would go out and I would hold, I had a little boogie board type thing where it was um, a little uh, Velcro deal so I could grab it as a sort of floaty if I needed to. Um, and then I would push him as the waves came in, and he would go. And somewhere in there, I left the boogie board back on the shore, and I was just out there trying to help him catch waves. And here it came, and I, I push it, and he goes, and I'm watching him, and I'm cheering him on. And um, I start to make my way to him, and I get hit by a wave, and it pulls me back. And it's like, oh, dang. I'm further out than I need to be, I, but I'm just going to go on. And I tried, but then another wave, very, and then another one, and suddenly I was not able to um, catch my breath and make any progress. And I was going further and further out. And I thought, is this where panic sets in? Because I am really freaking out right now, and I'm getting kind of numb, and... That I saw there were a bunch of surfers, and there was one, um, you know, not further away than that round table. And I thought, and this is what's amazing to me, um, I thought, am I going to uh, lose my composure in order to not die? And so that, the chother thing is helpful to me on this, because I did have a moment where in order to avoid embarrassment and the, the appearance of needing someone, I was about ready to, to go. And I thought of my kids, and I thought, no. Slow clapping, there's no slow clap. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But I'm suggesting that the, the ego goes that far, this idea that I don't need anyone, that... I alone can fix it, goes really, really far. But I, I surrendered it, and I yelled at the guy, and I can't believe what I said. I said, I think I need a little help over here. <laughs> I mean, there it was. No, it's not I think I need, I think therefore I am. I am all need right now. I'm done. And so the guy makes his way over, and I say, you from around here? So I'm, I'm trying to get that kind of equals thing going on. And he is so annoyed because he maybe has an hour or two to get his surfing in. He probably does it every day. And here I am cramping his style by 
almost dying. And he says, the lifeguard's coming. I'm like, oh, okay. And the lifeguard comes and uh, has this red thing and puts it on me. And I thank the guy, and he doesn't even acknowledge my thanks. And I'm going, and I start. So the lifeguard has me with this thing, and I start kicking to help. And he says, it would be better if you just were still. <laughs> Which was very, very tough. Very, very tough. And he made me, until I was standing there with the floaty on me, he wouldn't go away. I really wanted him to go away. Just, but according to the rules, he had to go all the way in with me. Um, and then I see my kids wandering around. I, I thank God to this day that they didn't see me with the floaty because that would have been a bit much. But I see him. where were you? And I said, sit down, let's talk. And the more I processed it, um, I told my daughter, I said, I think that I've been delivered from a myth. And, she, and I didn't know what myth. She said, what's the myth? And I had a number of answers to that, but I, the myth of my own self-sufficiency and the myth of critical detachment. And so I want to say that to say I'm not religious, I'm not political, um, is like saying I'm flesh and blood, but I don't have a body. It's a little bit like saying it's only other people who exist in a context. I am context-free. I just see reality as it is. Um, and that, of course, is an impenetrable ignorance that often wins the day in popular discourse. That the stronger we are in denying other people the fact of their own experience, the more powerful we feel. But of course, to me, power is Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers is the really powerful person in that situation because Fred Rogers is going the way of self-emptying rather than the assertion of ego kind of thing. Okay, so I have so much, but I think I need to move into that place where I just give you the big idea again that if what we are is what we believe, is what we de, de, what's wrong with me, is what we do, is what we say, it's our, our witness um, is the sum of all of these things, and we're never not witnessing concerning particular values and hopes. My witness is the shape my loves and my hates take on a daily basis. Tiny little provocation I can't resist. Sometimes people want to say, you know, I'm not religious. And I'll say, well, listen, would you, um, could I push you on that a little bit? And if they say yes, I'll say, okay, how about this? Show me your online history. Show me your receipts, your gas mileage, your text messages. And while you're at it, a transcript of everything you've done and said in one day. And we will begin to get a picture of your witness, your religion. This isn't intended in a shamey kind of way. But we're all, we can't not matter. We're always doing this. Okay. Um, I want to share a poem with you in conclusion and then see where it goes. Are we all right on time? Okay. Here comes this poem. I posted this. There was an election. Was it last week or was it two days ago? When was it? Okay, I'm just joking. We're two days in, right? 
Tuesday night, so the morning after I posted this poem, seemed to help people. You should have voted, no, I'm joking, that's not how the, there's no, there's no should on this, and I guess I want to say, um, it never helps to should on people, or to should on ourselves. You get to note, of course, that madness, mad is always a form of sad, and try to figure out and give that credit to people if we can. Mad is a form of sad. Okay, so this is um, William Stafford, A Ritual to Read to Each Other. I read, well, I'll tell you the, well, hmm. there, it mentions a broken dike at one point. Anybody know what a broken dike would be? Like a, like a, um, a dam breaking, water coming through. So other than the broken dike, I think everything else in this is going to be self-explanatory. Here it comes. A ritual to read to each other. A ritual to read to our other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug, that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park, I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. William Stafford is the poet, um, a ritual to read to each other. Um, I'm trying to get Patton Oswalt to follow me on Twitter. Um, Y'all know who Patton Oswalt is? And I replied to something he said today, and I said, I start with this poem, and I try to have this poem. I have, I've had it memorized, but I was too scared to try to recite it to you just now. I try to play it in my mind a lot of the time when I'm talking to people. Let me read that last stanza again. It's important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep.